On behalf of Chest, I'd like to welcome you to the August 2018 podcast. I'm Kyle Hogarth from the University of Chicago, the editor of the podcast section. Thanks again for joining us today for what's going to be another terrific conversation. My first guest is Dr. Joseph Bledsoe from the Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah. He's here to talk about his study, Management of Low-Risk Pulmonary Embolism Patients Without Hospitalization, the LOPE, is it LOPE or LOPE, Prospective Management Study. What do you guys call it, Joey? Is it LOPE? Yeah, we call that LOPE. Okay, the LOPE, the LOPE Prospective Management Study. Uh, Joey, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. <laughs> Absolutely. And then also my next guest, uh, Dr. Samuel Goldhaber, Professor of Medicine and Section Head for Vascular Medicine and the Interim Chief for Cardiovascular Division at the Brigham and Women's Hospital with Harvard Medical School in Boston, Massachusetts. And he's here to talk about his accompanying editorial, Cautionary Notes about Outpatient Treatment for Acute Pulmonary Embolism. Sam, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you, Kyle. Okay, so Joey, launch into it. Um, you know, what were you guys trying to accomplish? I think the, the title sort of says it all for us, but, but you know, put some context in as to what you all were thinking and, and you know, when you were designing this, and then you know, where, where were you going? Yeah, so this study started a long time uh, prior to us actually enrolling patients. Um, I started my career doing internal medicine and then switched into emergency medicine, but uh, while I was an internist, for a short period of time, I realized there were quite a few patients who were, uh, frankly, bored sitting on the hospital wards, um, just waiting to get uh, anticoagulated and have their warfarin therapeutic. And so, realized that there was probably a cohort of patients that could go home and not have to sit there on the ward and uh, wait for that process and could do it at home. And so. Um, that's really how the study got started. Um, I became the research director at Intermountain Medical Center and then had the opportunity to work with Scott Stevens and Scott Wooler and uh, some other um, high-powered people uh, like Greg Elliott, uh, who I think is um, uh, who's well-known and friends with Sam. Um, but we were able to put the study together. And essentially, we uh, decided to do a single um, single-arm management study, uh, essentially a pragmatic study looking at patients who are low risk by the PE severity uh, index score, um, but then also we did further risk stratification um, using echocardiography, whole leg compression ultrasound, um, and then uh, basically an observation period either in the emergency department or in the hospital-based uh, observation. And so essentially we, we enrolled patients in the emergency department, uh, they were consented, and then um, treated with therapeutic anticoagulation, um, and then kept on the floor or in the ED um, for a minimum of 12 hours, maximum of 24 hours, um, and then discharged to home uh, without patient follow-up, either through their primary care physician or through, we have a thrombosis clinic here that's uh, staffed by uh, Dr. Wohler and Stevens. Um, and so essentially that, that was the study. Um, we were able to enroll 200 patients um, out of 1,000, just over 1,000 screened. And um, we showed good outcomes on those patients. Only one patient suffered a composite uh, uh, outcome, and that was a major bleeding event, uh, which was a thigh hematoma following a trauma. Um, that required them to have that hematoma evacuated in the operating room and a transfusion, uh, which met the criteria for a major bleeding event. But we had no, nobody suffered mortality 
um, and there were no recurrent symptomatic VTE during the 90-day follow-up. Fantastic. Um, Sam, you wrote a really nice editorial, I think, to try to help uh, put this. And, and Joe's article, you know, for everyone who's listening, definitely uh, worth reading. I mean, not just for the obvious reasons, but also very well written to describe some of the context, you know, in the sense of uh, looking at low risk uh, for, for mortality and other bad outcomes related to PE and, and you know, retrospective analysis that then led to the idea of doing it prospective. And Sam, you expand on that and, and, and give us some context in regards to other trials. So just, you know, up front, Give us your thoughts in regards to when you first read this study. Sure. Well, I've worked with the Intermountain Healthcare Group even before it was called Intermountain Health. And uh, these are really collaborative, uh, smart, hardworking uh, physicians, uh, clinician investigators uh, who just love collaborating and uh, testing hypotheses to see if they work. And uh, we've done multiple trials of TPA for pulmonary embolism, uh, thrombolysis with them. And it's always a pleasure to be in Salt Lake. Um, and I was there just a couple of months ago uh, when Dr. Greg Elliott won this very uh, special Legacy of Life Award uh, for all uh, that he's done in the scientific and medical community, not only in Salt Lake, but really uh, across the world. So I knew when uh, this paper came out from Intermountain Health that it was going to be uh, something uh, with a lot of impact. Uh, and of course, it, the results are a dream come true. Uh, you have patients with pulmonary embolism averaging 13 hours hospital stay from the time they pass through the door of the emergency department until the time they are discharged home. And what's really remarkable is that they all get very thorough workups in this short period of time. Uh, yeah. In addition to the chest CT scan uh, to make the diagnosis of pulmonary embolism, somehow uh, the investigators were able to get echocardiography done uh, seven days a week on these patients during their uh, half-day stay in the hospital, and they were also able to get the uh, this whole leg compression ultrasound done to determine whether there was a large amount of remnant and residual deep vein thrombosis. And I think these are important aspects of risk stratification. And it was done very quickly, but I think at uh, most centers, most emergency departments, um, and maybe Joey, uh, you could you could give us your uh, personal viewpoint on the culture. Is the emergency department physician uh, 
uh, sometimes has a clock on the computer screen counting out how many hours a minute the patient's been in the emergency department. But even if there's no clock on the computer screen, you're thinking, uh, uh, does this test need to be done in the Department of Emergency Medicine or can it be done upstairs after the patient submitted? And I think... Um, Probably across the country, uh, most of the echoes in most of the venous ultrasounds in the leg are done uh, not so quickly uh, because the emergency department physician would argue you don't really need that information right up front to make a decision to anticoagulate the patient. So. Uh, I think the thrust of my editorial is that this is a great study. Uh, everyone worked together, got the special resources needed uh, to be 24-7, 365, to do a thorough workup in the patient within 12 hours, uh, but can this be replicated? And on top of that, there's something else that's different about the state of Utah uh, compared with a lot of the readership of CHEST, uh, which is that Utah is ranked number 42 for medical malpractice lawsuits. And I think it's um, the total payout for the, for the state of Utah was $16 million paid out in a year. Compare, compare that to New Jersey, for example, uh, where, where uh, the journal chest is very widely read. There, the payout was $256 million in a year. And I think we as physicians you know, have in the back of the mind that there's always uh, a certain amount of luck and uh, good fortune that goes from practicing medicine. It's an art as well as a science. And, uh, and we tend to say there, but for the grace of God, go I. And suppose this patient's in the hospital for 12 or 13 hours, is discharged, and has some catastrophic event. Uh, uh, how how is that not going to only impact me as a doctor uh, and uh, uh, my family and the patient, the patient's family, but um, is this going to end up as a medical malpractice issue because uh, pulmonary embolism is a very tricky business in terms of its management. So I, I, love, I love the study. Um, I think about 20% uh, of the patients of all comers who were screened for it were eligible and enrolled as low-risk patients. But I bring up uh, the question is, can, can this very special sauce of Intermountain Health in Salt Lake City in the state of Utah, uh, can that be uh, projected and translated uh, not only across the United States, but really throughout the rest of the world because Chess enjoys a, a global leadership and readership role.
No, I think those are excellent points. Joey, I mean, do you want to follow up on that? I, I, um, I mean, and maybe at the same time also it, um, we should define uh, how you were um, – you know, who you excluded, you know, so that if anyone is reading this paper and says, you know, I, I, I like these results, I, I want to try to replicate this or utilize this in my institution in some capacity or to study it further so that they understand this wasn't like, oh, you have a PE, good luck and go, that there was a very thoughtful, careful evaluation that, that Sam just highlighted, you know, as, the, as far as the speed um, to prove that you were indeed in a low, thought to be a low-risk category and therefore eligible for your study. Yeah, no, I think that's a very good point, and we are fortunate at Intermountain that we have resources available to us in the emergency department that many other centers just don't have. So, um, I mean, <clears throat> to Sam's point, I enrolled a patient on Christmas Eve at about 7 p.m. and was able to get an echocardiograph done on a patient on Christmas Eve. Um, I think most other centers in the country and maybe the world would not be able to do that, but we can do that at Intermountain. So, I mean, that, that's a very good question as to whether or not this can be replicated outside of our system that tends to be pretty efficient and um, in an emergency department that's very uh, uh, resource-centric. So, um, and, and, the, and my answer is I, I guess I don't know. Um, and. The, the other question is, is the echocardiogram necessary? Um, I think some would argue yes. Um, I think others would argue no. I presented this study at the American College of Emergency Medicine, um, the uh, annual meeting, and um, it was a plenary session abstract, so I presented it at the podium and got criticism for performing echocardiograms on everybody. Um, but, uh, you know, in, in my mind and at the time that we initiated this study, uh, it was thought to be uh, crazy, frankly, to even consider sending home patients with PE. Um, and so our, our protocols may be a little bit conservative. Um, but that being said, we, we had good outcomes and we had a very low rate of adverse events in our group. So. Um, you know, I don't know. Can this be replicated elsewhere? Uh, that's difficult to say. Um, but uh, I, I think it's probably worth trying. I, I think, you know, in, in the end, we uh, take an oath as physicians to do no harm. Uh, first and foremost, I think that means um, try to prevent uh, physical harm to patients through adverse events related to their diagnosis. But I also think that doing no harm especially in today's day and age, probably also includes financial harm. Um, and uh, this didn't get published as part of this manuscript, but I had, we had a pre-planned uh, cost analysis of this as well. Um, and the costs are significantly less uh, in patients who are discharged from the emergency department. And given the insurance marketplace and other factors, um, financial harm is something to consider when you're treating your patient in the emergency department. Joey, can you speak a little more about the, about not the resources so much as the, the cultural and social um, feelings of the staff working at Intermountain, which made it totally within the culture that you need to echo Christmas Eve, you're going to get it. So uh, because I don't really think it's all 
I don't really think it's all a matter of do you have the resources, and that's a big part of it for sure, but there, there, uh, you can't really force people to do stuff like that. Uh, they, it's either coming from deep within them uh, or not. And so, so what are some of the secret ingredients you have in terms of motivation or team building uh, or other factors that you'd be willing to share uh, with the chest readership? Yeah, I, I, that's a great point, Sam. Um, we have a very collaborative environment at Intermountain. Um, and particularly, we, we have a pretty collaborative environment amongst the emergency department with other specialties. Um, and uh, one of those that's, that's maybe one of the most collaborative is uh, cardiology. So we have a pretty collaborative uh, relationship with cardiology here. Um, at Intermountain, we have one of the lowest readmission rates for heart failure in the country. And part of that is because the cardiologists realize that um, patients are, um, are pr probably safe to not be readmitted as long as you can re-stratify them quickly. Um, and therefore, the cardiologists have made echocardiograms available 24-7. and. Um, the cardiologists will read them and interpret them within a short period of time. Um, uh, we typically will get an echo read by a cardiologist within an hour or two of the study being done, and that's day, night, holidays, weekends, etc. So, um, so we we have a very collaborative relationship here amongst the cardiologists, which allows that to be um, possible. Uh, in addition, you know, uh, Dr. Elliott, I think his leadership has been instrumental in getting this study as well as other um, quality type studies done at Intermountain. He um, has been the chair of the Department of Medicine and has facilitated this collaborative relationship amongst the thrombosis service, the hospital service, cardiology service. Um, and really, it took all of those, uh, emergency medicine as well, it took all of us coming together uh, to be able to do a study like this. Um, and, uh, you know, in the end, I think um, we probably are more aggressive about re-stratifying patients in the emergency department uh, and sending them home. Um, we uh, are looking at publishing a study on our chest pain um, uh, admission rate, which is extremely low. Most centers around the country, patients with chest pain and suspected acute coronary syndrome, uh, the majority of patients get admitted to the hospital. And at Intermountain Medical Center, we discharge over 80% of those people from the ED. Um, and, and because because of rapid stratification. Correct. Yeah, we're able to stratify them quickly in the ED, but not, uh, it goes beyond that. We um, have the ability to get them cardiology follow-up uh, mm -hmm. in less than 72 hours most of yeah. the time. So it's, yeah. it's that rapid risk stratification, but then also the follow-up component. That well, I, think, I think that's critical because the, uh, the, the chest pain, as you know, can be for many reasons other than acute coronary syndrome, and uh, these patients often have a variety of factors that need uh, assessment in the office, um, 
you know, whether it's high cholesterol or high blood pressure or diabetes or obesity, um, they come they come to the emergency department because they have a family history of heart attack or stroke, and uh, they usually have risk factors that need modification. Joey, you had alluded that you guys had, um, you know, it wasn't part of this paper per se, but you were evaluating the financial aspects of this, and in particular, you know, the impact it could have on a patient. But let's boil it down to real simple things. What's the average length of stay for an admitted pulmonary embolism prior to the study at Intermountain? So, you know, even with all the resources that you're able to muster quickly for the patient, you know, prior to your study, culturally, even a low-risk patient got admitted. Um, you know, how long were they in your hospital? Two days, three days, you know? I'm just, it's more from a curiosity of if they were already getting out within 24 hours, you know, per se, how much did we save here? But if, it, if culturally it's a, you know, always been a two to three day affair, then clearly without even knowing any numbers on money saved, we've saved money, <laughs> period. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so um, at the start of the study, we actually pulled that data and the average length of stay was just over three days, so three and a half okay. days. Um, so, so, there's, so there's your money saved. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, but it, it actually goes beyond that. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, the, we, we discharged 61% of the patients in the study uh, from the ED. Uh, most of those were placed on observation status. Not all of them, but um, most of them. Um, and the 40% that were admitted to the hospital, um, their length of stay was... Uh, not quite double, but uh, close to double that of the patients admitted to the ED, and their costs were significantly more, and that's just even within the study. So those patients all had um, required labs, imaging, et cetera, that were required as part of the study protocol, um, and the patients that were treated and discharged from the ED actually had a, a cost savings that was significant. So. Um, I, I think that there's something to be said for having the ability to rapidly risk stratify patients in the emergency department. Um, that could lead to cost savings for not only PE patients, low-risk PE patients, but other patient populations as well. Sam, I wonder if you could, uh, for the sake of our listeners, you know, I'm, I'm, you reflect. You said this in your editorial, and it's, it's the, the obvious sort of uh, extrapolation or analogy is. Uh, you know, go back in time and anybody presenting with a deep venous thrombosis without pulmonary embolism was still admitted for anticoagulation and ultimate conversion to oral therapy. Um, and that there was that, you know, first tentative, well, gosh, a lot of these people just sit around. What, why aren't we considering outpatient management? And you know, then that obviously became the cultural norm, but that took studies and that took guideline changes. And, you know, do you, do you hope and think that we're maybe at the start of another cultural shift off based off of data like this and some of the studies that you said are currently ongoing? Well, I think we're, we're certainly learning how to uh, give thrombolysis uh, more rapidly than we used to. If you go back decades, uh, thrombolytic therapy was administered over a 24-hour to 48-hour period. Uh, that is no longer the case for pulmonary embolism, uh, and I think we're really going off-label in terms of what we do after thrombolysis. We are um, not giving uh, usually uh, any long bridges with heparin or low molecular weight heparin 
for patients who are ultimately discharged on a doxaban or on dabigatran and uh, we're not necessarily after thrombolysis uh, even bothering with a twice daily loading dose of rivaroxaban or apixaban. So I think uh, that's what I think is happening in the real world, um, but we don't have the the studies to prove that that's the right thing. I think that uh, you know DVT in and of itself is not going to be fatal, but a pulmonary embolism might be, and, and that's really what what is going to hold back. Uh, what's going to hold back? Uh, I believe the adoption of the 12-hour hospital stay, which uh, was demonstrated so nicely at Intermountain, uh, I find in my practice the only patients who end up staying for 12 hours for uh, low-risk pulmonary embolism are physicians, nurses, and pharmacists who work at the hospital who know that the hospital has the possibility uh, to do for them as VITs within the hospital um, the echo and the venous ultrasound of the leg and anything else they need and get them out uh, within 12 hours. But this is the exception rather than the rule. And I think the other thing, the other area we haven't uh, touched on yet, but I think we should uh, for those uh, listening to this podcast, is that pulmonary embolism uh, extracts for most patients and families uh, a considerable emotional and psychological toll. And I think it's really important uh, not only that the patient get referred uh, for a cardio- to a cardiologist or other expert in pulmonary embolism, uh, see, you know, within 72 hours after uh, this short hospital stay, but I think it's super important that someone, it might be the primary care doc, it, it might be, it might be um, someone who does not have a medical license, uh, really needs to attend to the uh, other ramifications and not strictly medical. I've been running with my nurse a once-monthly pulmonary embolism support group at Brigham and Women's Hospital for almost 30 years, and we recently expanded this through our nonprofit organization, North American Thrombosis Forum. Uh, we have an online support group, uh, virtual support group. In fact, we had a, one of those meetings last night where, where you can, you can uh, log in from anywhere in the world. We have all 24 time zones represented uh, to discuss the ramifications of pulmonary embolism in DVT beyond the specific uh, uh, medical issues that arise. And and, um, I think everyone realizes that after a heart attack, uh, uh, there there is a lot of uh, 
psychological work needed to bring people uh, back to their pre-heart attack baseline. Uh, but I think the same thing holds true for pulmonary embolism in most cases. That's a good point. That's a good point. So, uh, guys, I want to be respectful of everybody's time. We've been talking for a little bit. Um, Joey, was there anything else in particular about the study or sort of the direction you're taking things that, that we haven't addressed that you wanted to, you know, make sure we were highlighting for the for our listeners and for the sake of the podcast? Yeah, I, uh, just on Sam's point, uh, I, I think he's absolutely right that patients and their families um, definitely have a PE, a PE diagnosis takes a psychological toll and they have a lot of questions and he brings this up in the editorial but is that 13 hour stay long enough to provide the education and answer the questions that the patients and their families have um, and so we, we have actually, I just submitted a grant uh, to look at enhanced education for these patients um, that are being discharged from the emergency department with both DVT and PE so, um, and in fact, we sent uh, one of our one of the study's authors, Valerie Aston, actually went out to Boston um, and met with Dr. Goldhaber's group and uh, his PE support group um, to be able to um, have a little bit better understanding of what they're doing and to hopefully provide some of that education to our patients. And she made herself available to almost every study patient who had questions. So, I think that's. Probably an aspect of the study that didn't get highlighted and isn't uh, written in the publication, but um, may have been important and may have been just as important as any of the other risk stratification that we did. So I, I, I think that's an excellent point and uh, one that we'll be addressing with further studies. Oh, wonderful. Sam, some, some other thoughts or things that we didn't highlight or discuss. I want to make sure that we, as, as we wrap up, that we're, we're, you know, we're being all-encompassing and that any kind of other things that got missed, uh, you know. Sure. Uh, well, first of all, again, Joe, I want to uh, compliment you and uh, Scott Waller, Scott Stevens, and all the other uh, wonderful colleagues you have at Intermountain. Uh, I think uh, the... Uh, one big issue that remains is, uh, even today, uh, lack of awareness of pulmonary embolism. And of course, if you if you are not aware of the condition, you're not going to present yourself to necessarily to the emergency department or present yourself in a timely manner. So that. That needs more work. And then I think the other area is, we, is primary prevention. There, uh, there are a lot of patients admitted uh, with medical illnesses where their prophylaxis, usually tenoxaparin uh, in low dose, 40 milligrams daily, is stopped at the time of hospital discharge. Uh, but these patients certainly uh, if they've been immobile during their hospital stay, they're at high risk of suffering uh, pulmonary embolism or DVT during that first four or five weeks after hospital discharge. And uh, there, there's now a, a new FDA-approved uh, direct oral anticoagulant that specifically addresses this transition 
from hospital to home because in a you know in a perfect world with attention to risk factors and uh, an active rather than a sedentary lifestyle uh, we, we'd have a real reduction in, in the number of pulmonary embolism cases that we have to deal with uh, year after year um, and I think if you look at the available statistics, uh, it's not only because we're better at diagnosis, I think uh, because a sedentary lifestyle and immobilization have become so much part of our culture and society that uh, the problem of pulmonary embolism and DVT is increasing in incidence and therefore uh, part of the solution is doing exactly what Joey and his group did is figure out how to safely and efficiently work these patients up and make sure they get optimal management. Fantastic. Well, guys, unless we're something else we're missing, I uh, want to be respectful of your time and our listeners' time, but I think this was fantastic. And again, uh, as Sam uh, uh, praised you guys in the editorial, I mean, what a fantastic study to, to, to organize and to pull off and then to have, you know, clear results with, uh, you know, how you, how you did it and how you uh, evaluated these patients so that our listeners can uh, absorb this, uh, this data and, and think about how it might impact their care. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, yeah, I just want to say thank you to Sam for his um, very astute and thoughtful editorial that will be accompanying this. Um, I appreciate the comments in there. Um, and Kyle, thank you very much for inviting me to participate in this podcast. It's been a great experience. Yes, yes, yeah, we've enjoyed you, Kyle. Thanks for moderating this. See you back, guys. Thanks so much. I appreciate it.